Hello and welcome back to Portrait of an Editor. In this episode of Cropped, Will Dennis and I chat with designer and letterer extraordinaire Jared Fletcher about working with Cliff Chang, maintaining a 12-hour workday, and how the Joe Kubrick School prepped him for tech changes that hit the comic book industry as he started out. We also talk about ink saturations, how his job relates to what tech printers are using nowadays, and his workday schedule. Also, finally, I find out who decides where word balloons go on the page. This episode of Cropped is a companion to the chat Will and I had with colorist Lee Lowridge in Cropped number 17. So let's uh, jump right in with our conversation with Jared. Enjoy. Jared, welcome to Portrait of an Editor Cropped. This is an ongoing experiment that Will Dennis and I came up with. Uh, Will is here. Hey, Will. Hello. And hey, Jared. Hey, man. <laughs> um, Hello. Of interviewing people that Will works with on a regular basis and sort of like diving into parts of comic book creating that probably don't get enough press or ink or whatever you want to call it. And colorists and now letterers are sort of our primary sort of areas to really explore. So you're our first letterer on Cropped. And Right away from just looking at stuff, there's a Cliff Chang connection. It looks like you've been working with Cliff for a while. Have, is that true? I mean, I see a couple. There's like Wonder Woman. You designed at least the logo yeah. for the book. And then, of course, yeah. Paper Girls. I guess one thing looking back at it is that like the first letter I really recognized as a personality on the page was John Workman working with Walt Simonson. And it's oh, yeah, of course. That's when things really started popping and there was a design element. There was a personality behind the lettering. Um, and then looking at other letters after that, sort of having that epiphany of how there are other people doing that with your connection with Cliff. Is that sort of the, where you are too, that there is a connection. You guys, you're not just lettering a script, you're designing pages. I would say I don't approach the work any differently with Cliff than I would anyone else. I've just, I've worked with Cliff on a volume of stuff, but it's, it's not any different than how I try to work on any other artist. I met Cliff in the back of a limo on the way to Bob Schreck's house in New Jersey when Bob was editing. And I had just started, I don't know how long I'd been on staff, but I'd known Will. I don't think Will was at this function, but like Bob lived in New Jersey and he would have like a party every year where he would have staffers and different freelancers out at his house for like a barbecue. And he had hooked it up where like a limo would take you to and from his house to the train station. But the problem was is that the limo driver had no idea how to get to Bob's house. And this was all like... This is all like pre-Google Maps, pre-iPhone, pre-like all that, right? So we're just driving around like lost in the dark uh, in this limo with like tinted windows. And the dude is like, can you guys like look out the window and like help me find where we are? And like none of us have. Yeah. And like none of us have like any idea where we are. And it was me, uh, Cliff Chang, Jenny Lee, and the great Scott Nybachen. And the four oh, of wow. us were lost in that limo for about like an hour. Uh, and that's how I got to know Cliff. 
and then we've been working together. Um, I think the one I remember that stuck out to me was like the, the Dr. 13 one with Azarello. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. we've just been working together. Um, not on everything he's done, but like on, on, you know, we did Wonder Woman, we did Paper Girls. We've had like a relationship, you know, we, we've had like a, like a personal relationship. So I think that's, I don't know, we get along, we work well together. That's like another big strength to working with Cliff. Cliff is maybe the most like organized and efficient artist I've ever worked with in terms of like the, the files are all formatted absolutely perfectly. Paper Girls was never late. Like it's like Cliff. Cliff gets it done. He doesn't get enough credit for that. Um, that's a huge reason I like working with Cliff. Is like Cliff says he's going to do something and he does it, and you can count on that. And then like he delivers, and then I just I try to deliver my end. Um, and that's that's incredibly valuable with someone over like a long term working relationship. In the scheme of things, seeing that. Cliff delivers everything on time. I guess going back to what we're referencing, what colorists are, they're sort of towards the end of deadlines. Where in the process for people who, you know, just, you know, don't understand the pro, you know, aren't aware of the steps that are taken in putting a comic book together. Will, where in the process does the letter come in? I mean, it can come in at any number of stages. It depends how tight the deadline is, right? Or how late you are on a book. If you got plenty of time, you might get it all colored, lettered, or, you know, get it all colored and kind of knocked together that way. And then the letter can do their thing. But sometimes, like, I'm working on a book right now that I think we're due on Friday. <clears throat> they want the files all done on Friday, and I won't have any of the colors until maybe Thursday night or Friday morning. So the letter has been working off of, like, the high-res scans of the inks, you know, and, like, to do that so that while the colorist is doing their thing, like we can get a first round of the lettering, do correction, send it back, get it fixed. So essentially, like all we have to do on Friday, if you know, is marry up all the pieces, kind of, you know, and get it in. So sometimes, I mean, I've had letters work off of essentially like layouts, pencils, that kind of thing. You know, if they really, really had to. Um, but yeah, I mean, generally speaking, it, it happens. I mean, ideally, you'd like to have all the colors in, and then the letter could kind of do their thing, but that doesn't always happen, you know. Or maybe you'd work in halves, like if you could get the first half of the stuff colored, you know, you could get 11 pages done. Then while the colorist is finishing the second half, then, you know, you could be wait on that, so then they only have to letter that second half of the book, you know, and that's the kind of thing that, you know, good, fast letters, you know, they can do that over a weekend, whatever they could do it overnight if they really had to but you you try to avoid that if you can but um yeah i mean really good letters are just they're they're kind of i mean they're obviously at the mercy of like the rest of the squad but they're also like they're like the like a really good shortstop you know like it's like you can't really you know obviously you can't function without them but they're like utility is kind of where they make a lot of their money you know so someone like jared it's like the can do i mean we can talk more about like just the kind of all the cool upfront work that he does but then he can also do you know like when you need that person call at seven o'clock at night and like i really need these last pages done by tomorrow morning or something like then they can shift into that mode too you know because there's some people who can't do 
both. Some people just want to be designers and they don't, you know, they're very snarky in particular for other people just churn out letters. And it's like, there's not a lot of thought to it. They're just kind of like, you know, R2D2. So like you, you need the really good guys who have really long careers and you really want to continue to work with other people who can, you know, have all these different tools in their toolbox, you know? And I would say Jared is like, you know, like low Ridge is like really at the top of that list. Now, why would a letterer need uh, stuff to be colored? Is that because they want the sound effects colored? Oh, okay. yeah. And that's that's a big like one the main you, thing. Yeah, captions, voiceover captions. You know, like a lot of times, if you're like on a book, like I used to work on Scout, and I was Steve Wands did the lettering on that. But like we stupidly at the very beginning of the process had like assigned color codes to all of the different voiceover boxes and stuff. So anytime one character spoke, it was always, you know, pale green. It was always pale blue, you know, which was a huge pain in the ass in retrospect, you know, but, um, so yeah, so it always helped with those kinds of things. Cause you don't want to be putting some caption box on a pale blue caption box on a pale blue sky and it would just look stupid, you know? So, I mean, and it's just, I prefer they just have all the stuff and then we can sort of see, you know, as complete a picture of the whole thing as possible, but you also get like some colorists who like they want to handle notes on the sound effect colors mm-hmm. or they want me, they'll come back at me with like a list of like, Hey, like change these sound effects colors. Like when I was on staff at DC, if you were running a super tight deadline, you might turn in final lettering files. There's no colors on the sound effects, and whoever merges the book in production before it goes off to the printer, like they were making those corrections. Right. You know, or right. the colorist was being looped in at that point, but it, it had nothing to do with me. So I wasn't on those emails, you know, but now that I'm part of like creator owned stuff or like some stuff where like you have certain colors who really care about that and they, they leave you notes. So especially the, the, the artists care about that, you know, like, like Cliff mm-hmm. and stuff always had notes on those kinds of things. So yeah, you, you ideally, want to have that information because it just it makes everything go a little bit quicker in the end as as will can attest to if he's ping-ponging files back and forth just to get sound effects colored by somebody else or whatever you know it can just if you're on a deadline it can start to kind of muck things up yeah and something's going to get missed or files going to go errant somewhere or you know and then you're just ending up spending all this time and Ajita, it really just depends on the team. It depends how much the artist wants input. It depends if the colorist wants input, you know. And, yeah. But like, if you, you know, I mean, ideally for me, it's like I get someone like Jared doing it. I want like the one stop shopping as much as I possibly can because I don't want to mess around with, you know, I'm on a book now that has a letter and a designer who's done all this design stuff. And I mean, I'm sure it'll be cool in the end, but it's just a pain in the ass, you know, because it's just one more person. With an another member of the band, yeah, you know, and it's like you suddenly your little quartet is now a five piece or a six piece, and you're, you know, it's just more personalities to juggle and all the rest. But that, that's always my, you know, I, and I didn't realize. I mean, Jared and I, our relationship started when he was working in DC, and you know, I think he always had the feeling that he had a lot of things he wanted to contribute, and he was always very collaborative. But the structure of that situation wasn't always conducive to that, you know. Because they had a real strong hierarchy and, you know, they were doing so many books and that kind of stuff. So like when I went to go independently and work with him and hired him at Moonshine, which is like the first thing I had worked on by myself, like I need someone who's going to help me, 
like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. You know, like I went from being in this gigantic corporation where like all my needs were being met by 10 different people. My, my idea was really like, I need somebody who knows how to do all this stuff who I can just go to with one thing. And you know, they're going to kind of help me navigate all these waters that I was just, you know, starting to get my toe into. Because letterer versus designer has come up, you know, in just the first few minutes of this conversation. Well, Jared, what do you consider yourself? I mean, are you, I guess, more of a designer? Is that, and I've heard when sort of looking at the research of what a letterer does nowadays, is that more, a better description of what you do on a book from beginning to end? I I would say that like, there are two different jobs. Like there's a, there's a job that I'm starting now that's like, just design you know like for like when i'm working with like pko it's all design work i like i lettered uh a book there early on because i loved the art and i want to kind of take a crack at that but then um i yeah i've been doing more and more like strictly design work lately and i yeah i would say that they're two different jobs but like will says like the appeal to someone like will is that there's one person doing two different jobs it's like when you would have to get like a penciler and an anchor, you know, like you could get a guy that can do both like Cliff or Eduardo. Right. And then Will doesn't have to worry about like, Oh, now I got to hire, you know, this guy to ink this guy. And it's another person, you know? So I'm doing two different jobs that are like kind of similar, but also completely different. Cause I could easily separate them into doing one or the other. So it's definitely how I separate it. Like in terms of my work schedule around here. When you start on a book, when you, you've got the okay, you find a publisher and everything, when would you bring somebody like Jared on and what makes you decide to go with Jared? Because there's probably other letterers, designers that you've worked with and, and work in, you know, throughout the years and in, in your, uh, on your uh, right. network, your phone book. Yeah. And I, you know, <laughs> and I try to, yeah, I mean, I try to spread it around, you know, to people, you know, cause I know everyone's always kind of looking for stuff and, everybody knows everybody too. So, you know, Jared knows all the other guys and vice versa. So it's like, I've often had people, including Jared be like, Oh, this sounds cool, but you know, I'm just super busy, but maybe you want to check in with so-and-so, you know I mean? It's a good thing in the comic book industry in general. I feel like is, you know, there's obviously competition as there always is for spots, but it's much more of a friendly competition. Like, people do spend a lot of time referring people to other people, you know? So, which I always uh, that's, appreciate. That's you know? always been my attitude. Yeah. yeah I, I remember like yeah. seeing other people who've done that. And I was like, this just seems like the best way to do this is like, if you know, people get busy and it's like, yeah, like you said, someone is always looking for something. Right. Right. So, you know, but yeah, I mean, for me, it's like, you know, I want to try to bring that person in as soon as we can. Um, you know, particularly at a place like image where you're kind of responsible for everything. Right. So it's like, you know, I mean, like I said, we used to work at DC. It was very siloed. So we had graphic designers who did all the, you know, they were doing the logos or maybe they'd hire that out to somebody, you know, or they had people who were lettering people who were just doing the book trade design and people who were packaging and doing all that sort of stuff. But you know, when you're at a place like image, essentially, I mean, they have good people on staff who help you with all that kind of stuff, but you know, there's, five people that work there for 500 books. So, you know, essentially they ask you to deliver these things more or less like fully formed. So again, like for me, if I can get a really good person that, you know, I know can do all this stuff um, and that the team is comfortable with, and that's just like, you know, it just makes everything a lot easier. So, 
Yeah, I mean, it's something like a moonshine. I mean, we'll talk to him right at the beginning, and then it's like, well, usually you start with like a logo or something, right? You know, like, oh, we're going to need to get a logo because, you know, they're going to want to see that. I mean, I've had the luxury of most of the project I work on, particularly even an image, they're kind of pre-approved because of the talent that's involved, you know? Mm-hmm. But a lot of times people have to do pitches and put together, you know, pitch proposals and all that kind of stuff. But I always think it's like having a cool logo never hurt, you know, like when you're presenting stuff even at that stage. But that's usually the first place you kind of start in terms of an aesthetic. And then, you know, you kind of go from there, right, Garrett? I mean, it's in terms of just like the development side of things, you know, it's like some conversations and sort of some, maybe some examples or some mood board kind of stuff. Or, you know, I don't know, you tell me like what, when, you know, I hire you to do Moonshine, like what for you, like what, what is your you know, what are the first things you have to kind of do on your end to sort of feel like, okay, this is what I want to do. What's your process then? The design process, I remember that we started, we started with the logo. And then I think that with the design process for that, I waited until probably I was done lettering it till we started doing design stuff because like I want to get a feel for the book. And so there's no way to get a better feel for the book than to letter it frankly, mm-hmm. and to read it that way. So then once I had kind of like the tone of the book down, that kind of informed the, the rest of the design process for like the books and the single issues and all that stuff. Um, so like if I was just designing that, it would have been helpful to get all that up front. But since I was doing both jobs, I kind of did it at the same time. So you kind of mm-hmm. like, thinking about it in the back of your head, like as you're lettering it. But as far as like approaching the lettering, um, I've always tried to work with a process of treating the lettering as an extension of the artwork and then matching the lettering to the artwork. So like when you were talking about like workmen, like I love John work mm-hmm. and it, but it sings over Simonson because it, it marries so well together. It, he's amazing over like John Paul Leone, right? But you don't want to see <laughs> Workman doing like McFarlane pages. It's it's right. just not going to be the same kind of thing. So, like I try to like tailor everything to kind of fit the style of the art, so that it looks like the artist is the one lettering it. Visual in the in the terms of the visual language of it, um, which is what attracted me to working with with will at dc because he was doing the vertigo stuff so like you could design stuff with the lettering with that in mind whereas he was saying before like if you were doing like batman you had like 10 different guys drawing batman the batman lettering was always the same to be consistent across the batman books and i was more interested in like tailoring the lettering to each artist specifically so that has always been my approach. So the approach to moonshine uh, would be no no different. And so I would go through my vast font library and I would try to find like half a dozen things that I think like as I'm going through it, like I'll make notes and I'm like, I think this fits his art. Like I'm very familiar with Eduardo's art. I've been a fan since Hundred Bullets. Um so I'll try to find a few things here and there. I'm like, I think this will look good. I think this will look good. And then I'll do a few test pages, probably on my own, just to weed out anything where I'm like, Ugh, what was I thinking here? 
And then I'll maybe get it down to like one or two options, show it to Will and Eduardo. Like, what do you guys think? You know, I'll, I'll develop a balloon style to match the lettering that I think fits the look of the book. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll do all that at the same time. So I'll kind of just be like, here, here's two versions of this. Basically, the balloons are the same, but the fonts are different. Pick a font that you guys think mm-hmm. works better. You don't have any objections. We'll go with the one that I like, and then we'll be off and running. Sometimes the artist has very specific ways they want the book to look, but in terms of moonshine, I think like Will and Eduardo just kind of gave me the freedom to kind of like, well, what do you want to do with this? And I, I came back, and we kind of went from there. Mm-hmm. And where in the process of getting a book on its feet would would that be occurring? Because is this before deadlines are being set? Do you have sort of the the freedom of to to experiment, or are you with, on, is the train with a moonshine? No, with a moonshine you do because I think like we because it's like a creator own thing. Like you you get to come in as early or late as as you need to to kind of like play around like that. Like other times you don't have that luxury of having that lead time to kind of play around like that. I I think that like, if I'm doing something that like, we know it's going to be 20 something issues or more, I'm, I'm putting that time in up front. But if we're doing, like I'm doing a thing now, it's like an anthology, Mm -hmm. 10 pages across like three different artists. I'm just going with it. Like I'm not giving them any options. We don't have time. I'm I'm just like, these are the ways that this needs to look. You guys have got to trust that I've been doing this for a long time and this is going to look awesome. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, it's something like an image too. Like, well, any company should do this, but image is at least smart enough to, you know, they want you to have a few in the can before they even solicit. Right. So, um, they don't know. It's not always true, but you know, I mean, that's like the dream. Um, so, yeah, so you have a couple issues at least kind of under your belt before you've even kind of solicited it, which then puts you about three months out from like publication. So yeah, there's time to kind of muck around with, you know, that sort of stuff. And some of it's just planning, you know, I mean, like Jared's very meticulous with his time. I'm meticulous with my time. I can look at a calendar six months from now, tell you where you're going to have a problem. But I don't know, the longer I do this, the more and the more I talk to artists and letters and colors who work for other places and other people, you'd be shocked at how many people don't like that's not how they run their shops. Right. I mean, it's like they'll literally, you know, oh, we have a book and it's going to be out and we're still looking for an artist, but we just solicited it. You know, you're like, are you kidding me? Like, that's insane. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, so I'm sure you get those jobs or at least those requests. And, you know, I think Jared, I know. I mean, Jared, I admire the fact that he's very good at saying no to things, you know? Um, and I'm trying to learn that myself, like the longer I do this freelance, because there are situations that you can just sort of sniff out as, oh, this is going to be a shit show, right? You know, like they're just, you know, when they're coming to you and it's always very enthusiastic and, oh, we love what you do and we're excited, so we'd love to work with you, but, you know, we need this to come out like June 1st and you're looking at the calendar like, are you acting kidding me? <laughs> you know, so I don't know. I mean, Jared, I mean, Jared, I think, I mean, I admire Jared for the standpoint of like, he's very, um, and I, we were talking about this with low Ridge. He's very reliable and you can count on him to deliver and he always does deliver, but he's also, I think very like, um, meticulous about his time. Right. You know I mean? In terms of, he's not, 
like he'll, he'll tell you like right up front, I can't do that that day, but I can do it this day or, you know, that kind of stuff, which I frankly appreciate. I'd much rather have that than the person that's shining you on all the time. And then they flake or ghost you and don't deliver. You know, I'd rather have the person be like, that's crazy. I can't do a Friday, but I can get it to you Tuesday or something, you know? So, um, I don't know, Jared, in that respect, I find, you know, does that too. And sometimes, you know, you don't want to hear what he has to say because you're like, shit, I need it Friday. But, you know, I, at the end of the day, I'd rather have that directness than, you know, and it was the same with Lowridge, you know, I mean, Lee, like starting out talking to Lee, it was the same kind of thing. But I mean, do you, do you feel like you, is that something you kind of had to learn, Jared, or is that something you've Ab- always absolutely. kind of learned? Yeah, you have Absolutely. you have boundaries, boundaries basically of like, you know, you're at the end of the schedule, and you might be having to make up a lot of time that gets lost. Do you maintain those boundaries still to be able to? A, a big, a, a big part of this job from a freelance perspective is maintaining those boundaries and and being able to like, those boundaries are what give you a life and like some semblance of sanity outside of this. Like otherwise, like if. You can, I can just sit and do, I can work all day, you know, until like I drop, like I don't, because like you can just like, that's why I have to be so good at saying no, because in the beginning I just said yes to everything because you don't know, you have like yeah. a poverty mentality as a freelancer when you're starting out and you're like, I don't know how much I'm going to have to work to make enough to keep living in this place and blah, 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 blah. And so you get burnt out like very quickly or at least I did. And then I learned to start saying no. And I, I started learning to kind of put uh, better boundaries around that time. And a big part of it too, that people don't always understand is that you're, I'm never dealing with like just one other client. Like everyone that I work with, like, like I like working with Will cause Will knows he's not the only Will in my life. Like right. where the other wills, they, they're like, what do you mean you have other stuff to do? Like, they don't understand that. And I'm always upfront with people. I'm like, look at, I am always working when I'm working and I, and I work a lot and, but there's other people and there's other stuff that has to go on. There's other deadlines that might be hotter and you have to learn how to kind of shuffle stuff and prioritize stuff. You know, sometimes people want to jump to the front of the line but they don't have all the materials they need to get to the front of the line. And then they get mad. I can't put them at the front of the line. It's like, well, you don't have a script for instance, you know? So it's like, you gotta, it's one of the reasons I like working with Will is that like people like Will, people like Cliff, they're like, they're, they're organized. They have what you need and you can get going with that stuff. Like you're not sitting around waiting for like little pieces of things to come in. Like those are the words. Um, yeah. I mean, I've said for what? years, I've said for years, if there were to myself and other, if there were more money in comic, all I would do, because I think it's probably what I'm best at is manage talent. Right. Like I would just, so it would be like manage Jared, manage Cliff, manage Lee. So I would be the person that everybody had to go through to get to them. Right. And then I could help them. I could be the gatekeeper that was, no, we can't do that then. Yes, he can do that then, you know, like that kind of a thing, like a, like a band manager or something so that they would be freed up and not have to deal with all that shit. Because like I said, I mean, the amount of people that over the years have sent me stuff, like, look at this guy, he's asking me for this. Is this reasonable? And I'm like, that's insane. Like, why would they ask, you know, like, 
because there are a lot of very disorganized, very fly by nighty kind of publishers and editors out there, you know, who don't understand all this stuff or have unrealistic expectations. But I, there's not really enough money in that because, you know, obviously these guys don't barely make enough, but, you know, they have decent livings, but they don't have that extra 10% to pay me to do it for them. <laughs> but I've always been like, that's what we I really feel like we would if we did. <laughs> no, I know. I, I feel like everybody would. Because anytime I've ever even broached the topic just as a joke, people are like, oh my God, I feel for that, you know, because it's just like you spend so much. It's like doctors nowadays who spend half their day doing paperwork instead of working with patients, you know, and it's the same kind of crap. Like I could be chasing invoices and chasing stuff and just telling these clowns, like, no, we're not doing that, you know, and then you could be the creators that are just doing their thing and never have to be the bad guys, you know? But, um, so I mean, what, what, what then, like, what does your day look like? I mean, how do you structure your day? Is it like a nine to five? Is it a, you know, you work in certain hours, like you work better in the mornings and take the afternoons or go back to it. Like what's your typical day look like? Even though I know there's no typical day, but in general, what's it look like, Jared? If it was to, if it's most typical, it's like 10 to 10. Maybe like, like that would be like the most average if I were to average it out. And then like, it could Mm -hmm. go longer, could start earlier. But you know, like I try to, I try to get up. And, um, one of the things that I, I enjoy about this freelance life that I've worked very, very hard for is that like, I sleep till eight o'clock. I'm a night person anyway. Like I don't go to bed till like one. I've always just kind of been night owl kind of genetically. Maybe Uh, my grandmother was, she was an artist. So I, yeah, I, I get to maintain that and I don't have to get up and trundle onto the subway at 7am. I'm very grateful for that. So I try to get up and, you know, get, get my exercise in on the rowing machine and, uh, do some other like morning routine kind of stuff before I kind of get into the studio. Um, my lunch breaks are kind of dictated by whatever hour my wife has off from meetings in some time in the afternoon. Um, we'll walk the dog together in the afternoon. That's like a big thing to kind of get out and get some exercise that way. Um, and then I get back at it. I find that I'm, I'm more creative at night. So I try to set certain stuff to be done at those times. Like, like if I have to do lettering, like let's say we're on like issue 24 of moonshine and I just have to kind of like put my head down and bang that out. I can put on a podcast like that's it's something I've done 24 times before, you know, so we can, I can just kind of like put my head down and, and, and focus on, on knocking that out. Um, and I've always been good at that. So mm-hmm. I just try to like structure that into kind of times in the day when I am not in kind of like, if I don't have to, if I have to do like creative, like designing kind of stuff, I try to kind of save that to like later in the day, like after lunch, I just, for whatever reason, I find things flow a little bit better that way. And I, I, there's something too about like, it was like when I was on staff at DC, you know, you'd come in, you have your morning coffee, you check your emails and then you just kind of start, just start going. And I, I think that's like the lettering stuff. If it's there and the table's all set and I've got all the materials I need, it's great just to get up and to have something that, you know, you can just dive into as opposed mm-hmm. to like, oh, I'm going to sit here and fiddle around looking at fonts for this logo. And it's just going to take a while. And like you can lose the whole day doing that. So 
in order to kind of be more considerate of my time, I try to knock out those knockoutable things, you know, or if I have like um, a book to design, you know, and it's like volume three of something and I've got all the templates and I know what I'm doing. I just, I like starting the day um, with something that like I'm familiar with and it just kind of, you get one foot in front of the other and next thing you know, you're jogging. Seeing that you're almost 10 to 10 and it, it sounds like you exercise in the morning and then go for a walk. But one thing we were talking about uh, with Lee uh, regarding is the physical aspect of sitting in front of a computer or, and, and stuff like that. Do you, is there anything else you do to sort of avoid like a physical burnout? I got a standing desk years ago that I got off of, um, a friend of mine and I used, I have one of those like big, I have one of those big, uh, Cintiqs that like, um, that like you can use from a standing position. So when I had a studio in Brooklyn with, uh, with Cliff Chang and A.A. McDonald, I used my, um, I got a hookup on the electronic desk. It's very old. I think someone used to design like airplanes on this or something. Someone was telling me it had an enormous drafting table on it, like, like engineering schematic size kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I cut that, I cut that all up and like I rebuilt the top of the desk and then I used the money from, I did two things with my before Watchmen money when I worked with the late Darwin Cook, RIP. I bought this Cintiq and then I, I bought art that donated like money to funds for people and stuff. Like I did a, I did like a bunch of charity donations with the rest of it, but I kind of figured to, I don't know, everyone was so pissy with everyone at that time for working on that. And I was like, I'm going to yeah, spend, yeah. I'm going to put money back into like, I'm going to invest in myself and in my health. And then I'll invest in like, I think I bought like Gary Friedrich needed money or something like, so, mm -hmm. you know, someone needed a Patreon and they were sick and no one was helping them out. And I think I donated the rest of it, like to something with that, just to kind of, yeah, there was so much bad karma on that project across yeah, the man. board that it, you <laughs> I, needed to do something to cleanse the, <laughs> cleanse it. The, the Alan Moore snake, like cursed or something. It was a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. But so I, I try to work up and, and that, that has been a big favor of my back, which <laughs> was like becoming an issue. And like uh, the issue that I have now health wise is just becoming like with my arm and my hand, basically, I think it happens with everybody. So mm -hmm. I have an acupuncturist that I like a lot and that's a big help. I would, I would recommend that to most people. Um, but yeah, that, that would wow. be the thing. I mean, just a workload. I mean, of how many books are you working on? Is that, or can you even count that? How many projects, let's say projects are you working on uh, I, I on a week? To. I try not to count. There's oh, okay. any, any given <laughs> week. But <laughs> any given week, there's like, all right, let me let me look at this week. There's one, two, three, four, five. I'm working on eight different things this week, <laughs> and and that's everything from like logo design, book design. Uh, I'm doing lettering for an anthology. That's like a marketing thing. Um, I'm I'm. I'm doing these like I don't know if I how much I can say about this. It's under NDA. There's like there's like a Batman thing that I'm doing where it's like 
I'm basically making ransom notes, which is kind of weird. Like I'm like, I'm like lettering slash designing these like serial killer ransom notes. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest. I can only do one a day. Uh, they, they take longer than I think. And frankly, they're a little creepy. Like, I, I don't know. I don't want to be the guy that spends like eight hours of his day making ransom notes. Right? <laughs> like, right. oh my God. I'm trying to, I'm trying to spread those out. Um, but yeah, there's, but, um, there's like a lot of stuff going on. What, 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 what kind of tools are you using? I mean, what's your, what, what are the programs and the tech stuff like that you use? It's all the Adobe generally? suite. Mm-hmm. It, it's all the Adobe suite, Photoshop, all the, all the lettering is done in illustrator okay. so that you can, the difference between the easy way to explain the difference between illustrator and Photoshop is when you export a file out of illustrator, you can, scale that up infinitely and it will not re- it will not lose any of its um, data. Like it'll still look mm-hmm. crisp where mm-hmm. like you start scaling up art and you get resolutions and stuff and things start to get messy. So, mm-hmm. and then you can take that. The idea is that when you use InDesign to merge those two things, you can then mm-hmm. kind of swap that stuff out easily. You know, as Will knows, you get, uh, foreign rights people coming to you and they want, you know, it makes it easier for them if they can mm-hmm. swap out lettering files and stuff in different languages. If that's not merged onto the artwork, it just makes the production end of things a lot easier. I know some people that letter their own stuff in Photoshop, um, you can do it, but it, it just, it's not part of like the traditional kind of um, assembly line version of, of how to do things, you know, like same thing for like lettering on the boards or whatever, you know, right. people do. Yeah. I mean, that's a big thing now with like all the foreign and then the digital and everything else too, that you know, and I have guys that deliver different versions for that kind of stuff so that the foreign licensees can just take the, you know, take it and, you know, change it all up and everything where it used to be much more of a hassle trying to get all that, you know, but, um, I mean, so, I mean, it's all very technical stuff. I mean, where did you learn all this stuff? Is this you self-taught? I mean, I, I know a little bit about your background, but like, I mean, a lot of this stuff in terms of, I mean, Lee was even saying that he was one of the really early adopters of all this technology and spent a lot of time, you know, having to educate himself and stay ahead of the curve, like technologically speaking. I mean, where, where do you fall in that? When I went to the Joe Kubert school, we, I was there like right at the tail end of them still teaching you how to do like really old school, traditional paste up and mechanical production techniques, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. Uh, like overlays and, and cutting out like relist tape and stuff and stuff mm-hmm. that I absolutely never had to do. And then when you get in the second year, they had a computer teacher and it was like, God, we were on like, I want to say Photoshop five, maybe Photoshop six, something like that. But I learned early. Um, uh, yeah. I, I had this great teacher uh, named Rick, Rick Solano, the Rick man. And he taught mm-hmm. computer class to us and we learned all the early, like rudimentary Photoshop and Adobe illustrator techniques. He taught us how to like scan our own artwork like stuff that like some guys like they still can't do you know like i, I meet right, these, like, right. guys in their 50s and they're like they've no idea like they're just so used to like mailing their boards to somebody and having them scan them 
another reason Cliff is great. Like Cliff knows how to do all that stuff. Um, so you get, we learned how to scan the art. We learned how to do early, like, like color setup stuff. He taught us like, like, you know, some, some basic Photoshop kind of tricks. And then we learned how to do, um, like illustrator work. We would have to do like, I remember there was one project we had to do sometime where you had to make like a, like a CD cover and you start using everything at the same time, kind of and design like credits and stuff like that. So when I figured all that out and then I believe they we did like an early, like a rudimentary digital lettering kind of thing when I was in school. And then I had done a little bit of that for some smaller publishers and then I got hired at DC a couple months out of art school because they had just started an in-house lettering program. So I was like the, the second hire maybe. And I got schooled in like how they did things. And they had brought in uh, Kenny Lopez, who was like a seasoned letterer and would work mm-hmm. like Marvel bullpen. And he came in as like the art director and he basically, he was, he was the one who kind of like showed me how to like professionally do it. Like I knew enough to know my way around the programs and stuff. And then mm-hmm. he set us up with like, look at here's the way this template, like he had a template, which like I did not have. And that was like the main, the main tool that you have in lettering, at least digitally is you have a template and mm-hmm. you understand like how the layers of that template work. And so you can just like turn off the letters or the sound effects, but keep everything else. And that template makes things editable, especially in something like uh, DC superhero comics. Where there's a lot of rewrites and stuff like that. You need to have a, you need to have something that you can move the parts around without it taking like too, too long. Like the template is really built for speed and efficiency. And once I learned the template, it was kind of like a lot of like what Lee was talking about, where it was like, you're on your own kind of like exploring. Like, and so I was, I, I always think about my four years on staff at DC. I always call it like my comics grad school where I basically just learned a ton for like four years. And I, and I got to like, you got to experiment on different stuff and you just kind of got to learn a lot as I went. And it was it was an incredibly um, educational experience, but yeah, Kenny was huge in like getting like DC up and running. I'm like, this is how people are doing things digitally because there was only like a couple of guys doing it at the time. I, I was part of this wave where they were like, they basically told all the freelancers, they're like, you need to figure out how to do this or we can't mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. Like there's no right. more like turning in, like there's no more pasting up onto the original art and all that, like it's over. I mean, I assume they had to make the same call to the colorist at some point. They did. Yeah. Yeah, they did. We were talking about that with people like, I remember Pam Rambo did creature and Lee was doing the separations on that. I think for a while and having like a hell of a time, like they were basically, I think Chiarello got her to like you know, pull some strings so that she got some exemptions so she could continue to send in like color guides. But yeah, at a certain point, they just were like, "We're not doing this anymore." You, you know, either you get it, get a Photoshop and figure it out, or you're like, "We just can't hire you." As freelancers, how do you guys deal with the advancement in technology now? And especially if you're like, say, with Image, they only have five people there, or another publisher that you're working with, and they say, "Hey, we, you need to be doing this in a certain way." 
does everybody just scramble to catch up or do you try to negotiate well can we get an exemption for this project but i mean how do you how do you handle that i guess will and then i guess communicating it to your crew and then how does your crew adjust i mean do they have to invest or time and money sure and there's a lot of people who don't want to because they don't necessarily can treat it the same way professionally as someone like jared does or lowridge does or cliff does you know that kind of thing I've had those arguments with people. I mean, I, I can name artists, like well-known artists off the top of my head that don't use Photoshop, like don't know how to use Photoshop, you know? And it's like, I mean, it's fine that you're able to still do stuff, but it's like in this day and age, like you're, you know, you're obviously, you're limiting yourself in a lot of ways. Like if you, if you refuse to kind of, you know, move up to what's happening. I mean, I don't always love it. I love the old school stuff. I, you know, when I was first starting out, we used to get in the overlays and get in the vellum stuff and cut them out, glue them down onto the boards. And I mean, that was an awesome process and it was a lot of fun, but like times change like social Darwinism. I mean, the people who are willing to sort of invest the time and the money and realize like, this is your career. Like these are the tools I need. You know, if you're a contractor and you're showing up at a job and you've got a hammer that's broken and a drill that doesn't work, like you don't get another job, you know, but You'd be shocked at how many people, I mean, even Jared talking about the guys who don't know how to scan files or label files. I mean, I still have to talk to people like all the time about that. It's like, are you kidding me? I mean, you, you, I mean, I always admire the fact that like the Kubert school kids particularly, or people from SCAD, other places, they're, you know, sometimes like they, you know, they were obviously taught by somebody at some point, like, this is how you be a professional. Like, this is what you have to do to sort of make it work. Right, Jared? I mean, essentially, that's, I mean, that, that, that to me is like the biggest thing for like Kubert school people, at least come out of there. And some of them, most of them anyway, with some sense of at least a, you know, larval stage of like what a professional life is like, you know? Yeah. I, I thought, at least when I had Joe, yeah, like a lot of them, yeah, they just try to prepare you for like, what the lifestyle is going to kind of be like, you know, which really isn't that much different than like looking back on it. It's like when I was in school, it's like, Oh, this is just a, a bullpen that I'm in. You know, like we didn't get up and move from class to class. Like you just, unless you had like the computer class or the life drawing room, you just sat at your desk all day in a room full of people, you know? And like it, it depending. And then I moved from that to like a room full of people in DC and then I was on my own for a little bit. And then I had a room full of people with Cliff and Andy. And now mm. I'm on my own again. But right. it, it, it's preparing you for that lifestyle, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean it's, it is kind of sad when you talk about someone like Penny Lopez, like what a genius that guy was. And like what an easy person to work with. And, you know, I mean, I, one of the problems like when DC moved to LA and then, you know, since they've moved on, I mean, just the loss of like the institutional knowledge like that is one of the things that always makes me feel like the worst about it. People are always like, Oh, do you wish you still worked there? And it's like, part of me does, but, you know, are you sad? Do you miss people? It's like you do, but you also like, I realize like the level of people who knew that kind of stuff. And then we take the time to explain it to other people. Like, I just don't like know where that really happens. I guess it's all YouTube oh, now or something, you know, but I, it's yeah. Or, Twitter, yeah, and DC, I guess you know, isn't message board something? I don't know. Yeah, Nate Picos has that book that he made. That's kind of like the follow up to like the the Todd Klein book, you know. And I right. think there's like the there's the outdated Comicraft book 
you know, yeah. you can kind of, <laughs> you can kind of cobble those together. And then like, you know, I think there's enough information there if you want to try to get a sense of like how this is done. But yeah, Kenny, Kenny was invaluable. And like, and I, I probably annoyed the hell out of him. Like that first year that I worked for him, you know, I would, I would go into his office and I would like, I would bug him about like, you know, I'm like, because he was like this encyclopedia of font too. So I'd be like, what's mm-hmm. font? Mm-hmm. He'd be like, oh, it's this. I'm like, perfect. Because you have to match something for a sign in the background or something. Like, I was always seeking out critiques. I was always seeking out like, you know, how do I make this do this? You know, like tips and tricks. And, you know, you were learning different stuff from like the guys in production, the guys who were downstream of you, where they're like, hey, man, when you set up these files, you can't leave this thing clicked on because it, it rejects the, and like, you're like, oh, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. So you, you, I got to learn like all this different kind of stuff while I was sort of like, yeah, I was actively, um, hounding Kenny, uh, to sort of like mentor me through like those first, like early years at DC, because like a lot, like there wasn't, there was deadlines, man. There was a lot of deadlines. So like, I, I would try to take whatever extra time I had to kind of like pick his brain. I, I thought it was, he was an incredible resource. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, that's true. And I think that's what separates people like you, you know, from, from a lot of these other people out there, you know, it's just, I mean, I've always said this about being like a good comic editor, but it applies to letters too. It's like, you know, it's the story of you and your friend being chased by a hungry bear that you don't have to outrun the bear. You just have to outrun your friend. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, it's just doing those extra things that are going to separate you from the pack. And then it's, you know, it's really what I found over the years is, you know, I mean, everybody's good at what they do, but so it's that extra five or 10% that you're giving somebody like, that's where you really, you know, shine. And that's like what we really, I think the longevity comes from and people rehiring you. It's that little extra, you know, cause everybody can do it at a certain level, but it's the people who can just, you know, that small margin ahead is what, you know, ultimately a lot of times makes the difference, but sorry, Francis, you were going to ask something. Well, it just also appears when you're talking about DC, there's two things. DC is probably a very different company than what you guys have. They've seemed to have gone over so many turnovers since they moved to Los Angeles. But Jared, you mentioned yeah. some, something about uh, the people downstream from you where they're telling you more technical stuff. They're saying, oh, that needs to be clicked on. That needs to be clicked off where you wouldn't even be aware of it. I mean, that is maybe something that's missing if not working mm-hmm. in DC is that maybe the people who are, as you said, downstream who are dealing with the real tech and getting the book to the printer or, or, or shaping it up are more cutting edge than you might be and are able to provide information. Was that something you found? And how do you, how did you replace that? If that was, the, that was true. The knowledge I gained on staff at DC about the actual physical printing process was another thing that was invaluable to me. They, they taught almost none of that when I was in school because like I said, like they weren't up on like the digital export kind of end of things. So I remember like early on, like, like you learn about like ink saturation, you learn about like what mm. a rich black is. You learn, like, I remember I was always trying to push stuff where we could kind of tra- print it with a transparency layer. I remember like there was this one book where I wanted to do like these, kind of color transparent captions and mm-hmm. before i don't think the technology was there to print with that but they were going to try it out on this but someone in the production and then clicked it off 
And I was like, oh, this whole book like misprinted. And they were like, no, we, it turns out we can't do what you thought we could do. And it's like, oh, all mm-hmm. right. So there's a lot of like, oh, all that I, I, I learned when I was on staff, because that is something that like, like the writers don't ever have to think about, you know, but like as the guy who's off these files, technically speaking, like you do have to be up to date on all that. Like an artist can probably get away with running like an old Photoshop, but you have to kind of be like more up to date on your illustrator and your uh, InDesign because like that, the printers are using that technology. So you need to keep Mm -hmm. up with them and interface with them, you know? So that, all that technical stuff, I I would never have learned on my own. I don't even know where I would begin to try to learn that stuff. Like all that was very eye opening. One last question: <laughs> Who the hell decides where the word balloons go? I used to think it was the writer, but in my <laughs> conversations, I hear it's the editor or the assistant editor. Uh, Jared, do you decide who decides where the word balloons go? <laughs> it depends on the artist. The better artist do their own word balloon placement in the layout stage because the better artists understand that they need to not only just leave basically leaving room for the lettering, but understanding like how the balloons are going to flow through the page. Like if I were to have like one strength, I think in my lettering beyond like the design skills I bring to it is I understand how page narrative is supposed to work. So I have a good intuition for how the lettering should flow through the page and how the reading experience should kind of go through the page. But I've had a whole bunch of different ones. Like when I worked with uh, John Byrne and Mike Carlin on the Doom Patrol, they were insanely specific about where those balloons were supposed to go. And mm-hmm. if I disagreed, it did not matter. Like, I, so it was kind of like a, you just shut up and you do what you're told kind of situation. And then there's other people where they're like, they have no idea. Maybe the editor doesn't know what to do. And they, and they trust me to do it where they're just like, we, we know that you're just going to do this. You've been at this long enough. And then I decide, but uh, like in Cliff's case, like Cliff decides Cliff has a very good idea of where everything's going to go up front. Yeah. I mean, when I worked at DC, we, traditionally the editors did it. I mean, if an artist asked to do it, sometimes they would provide guides, but it was pretty rare. So I did it on every issue of hundred bullets, Y scalp, whatever it was. And I had, I remember I've had artists like compliment me over the years, like, Oh, who does that? Does the letter do that? And I was like, I used to have to do that. So I used to have to make a copy of all the pages. And then I just would take a Sharpie marker and you'd number all the scripts, you know, the dialogue, one, two, three, four, five, whatever on a page. And then you would just, write a corresponding balloon with a number to it. And then, you know, the letter would have to sit there with like the guides and the script and the whole thing out and piece it together. But since I've been freelance, I haven't really, you know, it's often the letter or sometimes, you know, like the, the artist will provide guides kind of thing, but yeah, it's fun. I do miss, I used to love doing it cause it was a lot, you know, the choices and the flow of the dialogue and, you know, putting stuff and, you know, putting pauses between captions to kind of create like beats and, you know, breaths and like the talk and that kind of stuff, you know, I mean, it, there's definitely like an art to it more than I think a lot of people understand probably. It's, it's a big part of the storytelling process that like, right. you only notice it when it, when the ball gets fumbled, you know, like right. just trying to right. kind of carry it through. Um, I would say that the only time the guides are helpful was when, 
Like if you're working on something where it's like, you know, you're jumping into Justice League and it's like, hey, you got to help out with this issue of Justice League this month. And I don't know who all these people are, you know? So like, <laughs> right. it, if you want, and it really does slow me down if I have to sit here and like go through the script and I have to stop and be like, well, who's who? And I can't really tell, you know, where this is supposed to be going or whatever. Like, so in that case, an editor and assistant providing some sort of context for that, even if I don't, stick to the guys just knowing like mm-hmm. this is black lightning in the back there that you can't really see that well i'm like mm-hmm. oh okay mm-hmm. like i know where to point stuff then as mm-hmm. opposed to like just kind of being like who's who through these costume changes and stuff like i can't <laughs> keep up you know <laughs> so like right. like i think but some of that's down to the artist i mean really good artists will direct the narrative and direct the dialogue I mean, yeah. with the stuff. And sometimes it's just like two heads next to each other and they stick five balloons in between them. And that's like comic book, you know, one-on-one <laughs> kind of crap. But you know, I don't know. We try, we've been lucky enough either to avoid that or work hard to avoid that kind of stuff by and large. I know that when like we see, if we want to keep using Eduardo as an example, like, you know, those pencils, he definitely kind of like roughs in like what I call like a balloon guide mm-hmm. to his pencils. And then, you know, I'll, so when he sends me the book, I get like a pile of colors and then a pile of pencils. And like, usually I don't need it, but cause his, you can just look at Eduardo's art and be like, I know what needs to happen here. Um, mm-hmm. There's not a lot of confusion. So it's nice to have something to reference to because sometimes he does do a lot of like um, experimental panel layout that I'm a huge sure. fan of. But then you're like, wait a minute, whose hand is this? You know, so like, you you know what I mean? Like, who's this guy talking off panel or whatever? So, like, it it is helpful when he kind of provides that context for stuff. Yeah, he almost never sticks to the panel count. It's like, you know, Brian might have a script that says four panels and Eduardo will do it in like 11 panels or something, you know, that kind of thing. Or, you know, vice versa. But, you know, that's that's, that's a good thing watching these guys kind of work, you know, trying to figure all that stuff out. But, yeah, like that's that's where I come in, and I'm more like, uh, you know, like you're left with like, all right, there's these three panels that he made out of one, you know. So I'll come in like, all right, I think like we'll break down the dialogue, like you know, one, two here, one, and then we'll end on this. Like this seems like the impact panel, you know. And then maybe Will comes back and he's like, no, that's a silent panel. Like move that and the one before, and you're like, oh, all right, cool. And so like we'll you know we'll adjust from there, but. Yeah, that that is like sometimes more organic because like there's we've just been working on it for so long. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the lettering is cool because it's like I mean my feeling of the really good letters is like there's a level where you want them to be invisible, you know, almost, which doesn't make sense because you need to be able to read it, but you don't want an interruption in the immersion of reading the comic, you know. But to get to that stage takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of experience and a lot of, you know, it takes avoiding a lot of the pitfalls that you see often at this lettering that's like really in your face. And it's really 50 different fonts and 50 different caption sizes and the sound effects busting out of the balloons and all the, all the stuff that I think a lot of people probably starting out might think, you know, oh, as a letter, you want to be like making your mark. And it's like, it's like I, you look at John Workman's stuff and you can see the eloquent, you know, how elegant it is and how perfect it fits. Someone like a Walt Simonson, for instance, but it also like needs to vanish at a certain point, right? Because you don't want it to be, 
you don't want it to be interrupting your um, the immersive experience that you're trying to get a reader to have you know so i think it's always like a really fine line between that you know because I don't know. I mean, I think the really good people, including Jared, like they give you that, you know, I mean, you're aware you're reading it and you can see what you need to see, but at a certain level, you don't want to be aware that you're reading it. You want to just engage in the process of, you know, the project. And, and, you know, so it's very easy to not do that because, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to make yourself invisible at the same time as you need to be, they're such a vital part of the whole process, but I don't, I don't know. That's a little bit, maybe I need to, you know, take a couple more gummies and take a nap or something. I don't know. I'm losing it. <laughs> losing the plot there. But you know, I think you know what I'm talking about. Hopefully you know what I'm talking about. No, I do. I get it. Yeah. 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 Well, Hey guys, uh, I guess, Will, you got your meeting to go to. Jared. Oh, sorry. It's oh. much, much more interesting of meeting than anything else I could do all day today, let me tell you. <laughs> well, that, I appreciate it. Uh, Jared, it was great meeting you. We'll have to have you come back. Uh, I'm going to just go read some comics and stare at the lettering right now because oh, I finally got the education I needed, even though I've been, you know, it just, it's like the, the invisible art in a way. Uh, the right. aspect of comics right. is lettering but if you really stop and look at it it just i think maybe it's a subconscious but if you put it into your consciousness how much is really going on with the work that you do jared and how much you really you know add that extra layer of work i mean of uh interest or entertainment or i don't know art artistic mm-hmm. uh <laughs> i'm can't find the right word to the page to the whole uh experience i don't know if there's any last words you have thank you for having me <laughs> okay i i, I appreciate <laughs> i appreciate the opportunity to come and chat about this thanks man i appreciate you taking the time i know you're busy thanks guys stay healthy yeah you too talk All to right, you brother. soon see ya